0: Hey, everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast, episode 128. Our guest today is Lisa Whipperman-Heine. Lisa's career in MedTech started with a one She actually saw an ad in the paper. Remember those? For a junior-level regulatory position. And uh, she's never looked back. She went on to join several high-profile companies, including Acorn and EV3, Cavidian. And, and today, she sits in the CEO seat of a uh, stealthy heart failure startup called Precardia. So we'll learn a little bit about Picardia in the podcast, as well as the steps that Lisa took to prepare herself for the new role. I'm so very happy to have Lisa on this podcast and her help. She's on our advisory board of the MedTech Conference. So I hope you will join us at the MedTech Conference on May 29th and May 30th. If you haven't yet registered, checked out the agenda. You can go to medtechconference.com if you register before the end of this month. And if you use the highly valuable MedTech Talk code, you can get in for under $1,000. So I recommend you do that and do it quickly. Now, let's get into this conversation with Lisa Wipperman-Heine. Lisa Wipperman-Heine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Tom. Great to be here.
0: It's been great to work with you on our MedTech conference. And uh, I was very happy to uh, hear that you have a new gig. And, and I want to catch up uh, and learn more about that. But uh, we customarily start off this podcast with a simple question. How did you find your way into the medtech industry?
1: Well, Tom, I think it's a meandering path. I think a lot of us, <laughs> uh, a lot of us start one place and, and, uh, and end up by happenstance in, in medtech. Um, you know, I, a, a, I have always been fascinated with healthcare and, and medicine. And the more traditional path is, um, I think for a lot of people, you uh, go to college, pick a science major, think about pre-med. Um and I um was always interested in, in science and medicine and quite literally um fell into med tech by virtue of uh seeing an ad for a job in uh for a clinical research associate. And it uh, it, it uh played with my love of, of medicine and healthcare and and that's how I started down the pathway and literally just stumbled across it.
0: Did you know what a clinical research associate was before reading that ad?
1: Had no idea. All I knew is it had something to do with uh, medical technology and uh, thought, wow, that sounds kind of interesting. And uh, I uh, literally put a call into a friend who worked in HR in the company and said, just, just get me the interview and I'll do the rest.
0: Wow, that's, that's bold. It's, it is amazing to me that, uh, and less so now than I think before, but there's so much med tech when you go into an office or a hospital, but no one ever really gives much thought to the industries behind the creation of that tech. Um, do you go at the start? Were you science oriented? Did you see a, a, an MD sort of in your path or were you more of an engineering type or somewhere in between?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think I was thinking um, um, MD medicine um, or, PhD, mm-hmm. or a PhD in some, you know, biomedical science related area. Um, and I, along the way, I, uh, I got a master's degree and did a lot of research. Um, while I was in my master's program and worked with an orthopedic surgeon. And so that kind of fueled my interest in the research side of, of medicine. And uh, ironically, I did my graduate work, research work on a medical device. And uh, hmm. so that kind of got my introduction to medical technology.
0: Is regulatory sort of a natural way to, to enter the medtech industry? Is, is it a place that a young person wants to start? their career? Is there a benefit to that?
1: You know, I, th- I think it, it can be. I, I know actually two uh, young people that uh, both recently undergraduate uh, completed undergraduate degrees, both of whom have entered med tech, uh, one in regulatory and one in clinical. Um, and both were aspiring pre-medical students um, at hmm. the time and are doing quite well in the industry.
0: So where did you really become a member of MedTech? Was it, was it joining uh, MP after that? Was that sort of your first real, you think your first real MedTech gig?
1: Yeah, I think that was my first uh, MedTech gig. And, and I got the job, the job there because the company had a lot of devices and products that really didn't have any clinical evidence behind them. And so they had to build up a strong research and, and regulatory organization. Uh, to build evidence so that third-party payers, including Medicare, um, could be convinced that there was, um, you know, value, good value proposition for the technologies.
0: Was this a result of the? Uh, this was the Healthcare Reform Act of '97. What Was the name of the act in '97? Oh my God, I'm drawing a blank. I used to be able uh, to recite it. <laughs> I know. But the one that kind of revised me- me- uh, Medicare was it? Because is, is that why? This was necessary because tell us a bit about MP. It was more, I always thought of like a physical therapy kind of equipment company. So I was surprised that they had a clinical research and regulatory affairs operation at all.
1: Well, I think you would be because the products were predominantly 510Ks. They did have some um, even class one exempt devices, but they also had a drug device combination for which they had to do an IND for. Oh. Um, but, even, but even prior to that, a lot of their technologies, um, because it, they were considered durable medical equipment, um, you know, Medicare was a, a, a predominant payer and there really needed to be you know, an evidence, um, you know, value proposition to the payers for them to actually decide to reimburse for the technologies. And so I think that that was what the catalyst for them to put uh, a strong clinical program together. Uh, because a, a no coverage decision really is a it's a showstopper for your business.
0: So that would go on to be acquired by DJO. Were you with the company until that point? Uh,
1: I was with the company until they actually went. They the Carlisle Group uh, acquired them and took them private for private for a period of time, and then I left shortly before the the, the DJO um, uh, acquisition. So, I, ironically, I think every company that I've been with. Um, uh, I think almost almost every company that I've been with is no longer uh, by virtue of acquisition. It's amazing how our technology has contracted over time.
0: Amazing. That yeah, was the same way with newspapers, newspapers for a time, but they weren't uh, acquired. They were out of business. So yeah, it's a different, uh, <laughs> a different uh, track record. Uh, so with uh, then from MP, you went to Acorn. Was that a direct move? And what was it about Acorn that you found appealing?
1: Um, no, actually, in between, I went to a uh, I went to a CRO uh, contract research organization um, and spent some time on the vendor side of things, providing resources and support to to companies uh, from the uh, providing the expertise and the extra set of hands uh, to companies. So I did that in, the, in in between, and then from there, Acorn was actually one of our clients. I did a lot of. Uh, health economics, reimbursement, and uh, regulatory work for them and ended up um, taking, taking a role inside the company.
0: I see. Now I abbreviated my notes. Thanks for pointing that out. So did, did you see uh, the CRO uh, role as, a, as something long-term? Is it, it, it's got to be a different field to sort of be on the, the service provider side as opposed to inside of a, a med tech sort of building something from within.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for any consulting role in our industry, Um, there are the, the positives are you get to touch a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge is you, you never really get to own something and, uh, you never, it's, it's rare to get end to end with a project. So, um, the wonderful thing is you get exposed to a lot of different, um, products, different classifications, uh, different disease states, but to actually, you know, manage and lead something and drive a strategy from start to finish. Is something you don't get there. So, I, you know, I view consulting as a great you know, interlude um, professionally because it does expose you to a lot of different things. But at a point in time, because the industry is iterative, um, it's good to go back. I think sometimes jump back in and get exposed to some different things.
0: So you likely wouldn't have connected with Acorn had you not uh, worked at the CRO?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Mm hmm. So what was it about Acorn that you found appealing and what was your first uh, position there?
1: Uh, I ran, uh, I ran the regulatory and, uh, health economics and reimbursement functions. Um, it would, for me, what was attractive, it was my first, uh, v- venture into, uh, an early stage company. Uh, and so to have such a complete focus on a single product, uh, that, you know, you know, uh, potentially could have an impact on the terrible disease of heart failure and, um, you know, to be able to focus on that and take something, um, you know, as a panel track PMA, uh, and you get to work with, you know, uh, all these incredible physicians and, you know, impact these patients was very appealing to me.
0: Yeah. That was a, a huge story and a huge effort. Um, and it was, you're right, it was a really exciting time too. I mean, there, there was a difficult time for a bit for MedTech in that time, but there was such hope for for Acorn and what it could do. So by that t- time, you're sort of on the, the regulatory and the reimbursement path. Uh, is that, were you, were you happy with that that track that you were on or did you just sort of keep pulling at the same thread that you, you pulled back with that first job that you applied for? You just sort of found yourself in this position.
1: I think Tom, every, every role that I've had in med tech has had a little bit different twist on something, uh, you know, that I think with everything you want to grow, you want to learn, you want to push the boundaries of your expertise and experience. Um, and for me, because it was, um, the regulatory hurdles and, uh, the depth of the technology and some of the challenges were such that it really, I think, um, uh, challenged me personally. Um, so it was a little bit different than things that I'd done before. Um, but I learned, you know, new and different things and, uh, um, felt that, you know, each, each thing you do is kind of a building block. Um, so it was a great experience. Um, you know, very disappointing that I think you're right about the, the timing of, uh, where MedTech was at that point in time to, uh, to have a, the challenges that the company faced to try to keep things going with a technology that clearly had some, some merits and benefits.
0: And unfortunately the company, I think dissolved in, in 2010 or had its assets sold out, sold up sold off, but you joined COVIDian in 2007. How did that, uh, how did that switch happen? Because normally when you, you don't normally go from a smaller company to a larger company like that unless that smaller company is acquired.
1: Well, and I think that it was before actually COVIDian. So it was when, uh, COVIDian. it was the ev3 business of Kovidian. Oh. so i uh um had the opportunity to um join well, that makes EV- more sense. yeah I, I had some colleagues who worked over there you know it was a little bit of related space because it was vascular both um you know peripheral vascular neurovascular and uh to go over and and work with that uh incredible team uh, and honestly that's the reason i went over there they had an incredible team it was a little bit bigger company but it wasn't you know, huge. It was a public company, so to have an opportunity to work in that environment. Um, and to, to this day, it was one of the most transformative, um, you know, companies and group of people that I ever had the privilege to work with.
0: What are some of the uh, the feelings from that group that you sort of recognize as being, making it what it was, making it as, as powerful as it was? And, and do you try to recreate that? Have you tried to recreate that sort of? feeling uh as you moved on in your career
1: yeah i think i think definitely that's the case i think one of the things you it doesn't matter the size of a company i think there are there are learnings that are translatable uh, to any situation and i think uh from a, a leadership perspective we built this team it's really about the people so any company it's really about the people that there was a significant amount of trust the willingness to roll up your sleeves and get the job done um to ask difficult questions, to challenge each other. And I think when I joined EV3, you know, it was, uh, there were some challenges and we had, you know, some, some bumpy years through the Fox hollow acquisition. And I think to actually take that company, to be part of a leadership team, to get to the point where we were, you know, um, something that was, you know, valued enough that, um, you know, COVIDian would, um, you know, reach out to acquire us. And so I think that was a, a, a huge thing. And then you think about Covidian, the, the bulk of the leadership team, I think, stuck with Covidian um, through that acquisition and stayed for a very long period of time, many through the uh, Medtronic acquisition. So again, I think it was a, a very transformative time. There were some just, uh, you know, I think amazing teamwork um, to get the job done.
0: So anyone, anyway, MedTech has ridden over a few bumps and we'll talk with least in a moment about how one keeps both hands on the wheel. But I wanted to uh, remind you to join us on May 29th and May 30th at the MedTech Conference. I'm thrilled to announce that I'll be interviewing Kevin Lobo, the chairman and CEO of Striker. This will be a live MedTech Talk podcast, just like the one you're listening to now, except I won't be working in my jammies. Actually, kidding. Sweatpants. Ah, kidding. Anyway, go to medtechconference.com to check out the agenda. In addition to Kevin Lobo, we'll have a one on one interview with Ashley McAvoy of Johnson & Johnson and many, many other great conversations. It'll be a really great day. And don't forget to use your valuable MedTech Talk code. It'll knock $200 off your MedTech Conference registration fee and we'll get you a free munchkin at participating Dunkin' Donuts. Kidding about that as well. So go to medtechconference.com, check out the agenda. And now let's get back into this conversation with Lisa. How do you how do you keep the faith when you run into those bumps? And I don't know what the bumps were specifically, but I don't know if they were severe enough to make you wonder, "Oh, this might not work," or, or "This is a severe problem." But how do you sort of keep your eye on the prize and just know that that a bump it is a bump because because things can go south quickly uh, in a med tech. You can you know you can have a very binary re- response that can suddenly make something looks promising, look uh, look really disastrous. But how do you sort of keep the faith and keep moving on when you hit those bumps?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, Tom. I think a lot of people, um, you know, it's easy to tap out when things get challenging. Um, but I think a couple of things that I learned through our EV3 experience is, you know, uh, focusing on um, the vital, critical few. Uh, there's often going to be important many things to do, but how do you drive alignment, that everybody are rowing their oars in the same direction. Um, they're focused on the same key strategic objectives and that um, we work together as collaborative partners. We listen and we learn. We we learn from our failures and we fail fast and fail forward. Um, so I think um, just really that focus um, and commitment and collaboration are, are incredible keys to that, that success. And
0: do people tap out? Have you, does that happen or, or do most people stay the course?
1: I think it really depends upon, you know, the culture and the leadership. Yeah. Um, I I think a lot of, I mean, it's really important to share that vision and share that focus. Uh, You know, we have a lot of amazing, talented people in the med tech industry. And if you can show them your vision and share with them, um, a direction and a commitment. Um, I think people will get on the bus and, and, and work through the tough stuff, um, without a doubt. Um, but I think if they're, if they're lost and there's no direction and they feel as though they're, you know, aimlessly wandering, yeah, I think they're going to leave, um, or move on to something, something else. So I think it's really, again, that strong, cohesive, um, leadership team with a very clear, focused objective, uh, is really, um, Instrumental in getting through tough times.
0: Uh, Let's move on to Covina a bit and just talk about that experience. This is uh, obviously uh, a big company. (laughs) Did you enjoy? You were there for a time. You did stick around, as you mentioned. A lot of folks did. Uh, Did you? Did you enjoy that time and being a larger company?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. It was. It was. It was different. It was obviously different than um, you know a smaller company. Um, But I think there is uh, tremendous opportunity in, in larger companies to build something. You also have, you know, that big behemoth of a company behind your business unit. We had a, you know, $1.7 billion business um, in vascular at Covidian, but you have this big giant business behind you. Um, So some of the initiatives that we never could have done as EV3 alone, um, you're creating that opportunity. There's absolutely, you know, accountability and drive. But again, I think there was some tremendous leadership in Covidian as a company in um, Rich Milia and then um, Jose Almeida, um, who, again, drove a very clear vision and strategy, um, which I think really helped keep people engaged. Um, and I think really, I think they created a lot of opportunities for us to continue to, to grow our business. And uh, I think that really helped keep people engaged and want to stay there.
0: And I want to move forward a bit, but I'm in talk about precardia, this is your, your, if, I, if I'm correct, this is your first time as, as CEO of a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering, when did that desire emerge? When you were at Covidian or even Acorn, is there a thought in your mind that someday I'm going to be a CEO that I want to be a CEO? Is that something that many folks sort of harbor as a, a place they ultimately want to get or does that? Come, I guess later on.
1: I don't know that I ever explicitly wrote down on a piece of paper. I want to be a CEO. Mm-hmm. I, I think you know, and there have been opportunities that have come in the past. But I think ultimately it has to be a good fit uh, for um, the, you know, the technology, the skills. It's a it's a marriage um, in in some different ways, shape or form. That there are certain um, opportunities that probably wouldn't have been a good fit for me. This is, is in a situation of, of where the technology is. Being, you know, this was this, as you noted before we uh, called. This was founded and incubated by MD Start, you know, a, a, a uh, incubator out of uh, Paris, um, which has you know investment from Medtronic and um and Levanova uh, um, and, and uh, BP France, and so they've incubated a number of companies, and this a little bit. Goes back to my roots. It's uh, a a cardiac uh, preload device for treating acute decompensated heart failure. So it's a little bit related to, you know, Acorn in terms of the disease state, although Acorn was uh, very much focused on chronic heart failure versus acute decompensated heart failure. But um, I think the need that it potentially fills was very appealing to me. The phase of the company, they'd closed on a series A funding. So they're at this point, have a, a, a nice little bolus of um, investment uh, to drive through some of the early-stage uh, clinical trials. So it, it's, it really spoke to a sweet spot for me um, in terms of where my skill sets are. And uh, um, you know, so I think it was just a, a good overall fit.
0: Talk a bit more about the, the financing. You mentioned Sofanova and Medtronic and BP France. Now, those are investors in, in MD Start. Correct. Uh, are, are they also investors in Precardia? Can you talk, tell us a little bit about how that's structured?
1: No, I mean their 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 investment is in the incubator, so they help mm-hmm. incub, incubate the company. Um, so obviously they still um, are interested in it, but the Series A was taken out by a completely uh, different investor. Oh, okay. Um, separate, separate from uh, separate from the uh, incubator investors. So and that closed, um, you know, uh, earlier this year, um, and I think. There's a very compelling, um, you know, story around the technology. If you think about acute decompensated heart failure. There's not a lot out there, um, to treat these patients if they're diuretic resistant. You know, there's a, um, uh, uh, there's 1.8 million, uh, acute decompensated heart, heart failures per year, um, in the U.S. And, you know, there's a, a, a real opportunity here, um, uh, to, to bring something new to the table to help these patients.
0: So let's talk a bit about the well, first of all, can you identify that investor?
1: Uh, there n- n- no, that's something that still that remains confidential.
0: Okay. Strategic or institutional?
1: Um yes <laughs> <laughs>
0: Good, I've narrowed it down to only two all right yeah. well, let's, let's, uh, talk, talk, <laughs> let's talk about the technology I just in reading from the website uh It's based on uh the work of uh dr naveen Kapoor at mm-hmm. uh at Tufts Medical Center, which I'm a Boston guy, so I'm guessing yeah, it's, yeah. uh he is as well. Can you tell us a bit about the uh the technology
1: yeah it's a it's a cardiac uh preload modulation device which it's it's catheter based it's a temporary it's a temporary catheter placement. Uh, that does um, uh, intermittent um, uh, pumping uh, occlusions uh, of the superior vena cava. Uh, the whole point of it is to um, patients who are in acute decompensated heart failure are very volume overloaded. And if you can reduce that preload, you create a, an opportunity for them to recover more quickly, um, to help them respond better to the di- diuretics, and to hopefully, you know, ultimately. Get them out of the hospital more quickly, and hopefully do you know less damage to the heart um, with subsequent um, um, decompensations. Um, and it's you know these patients, it's um, you know it's the number one cause of hospitalizations and length of stay in patients greater than sixty five. So obviously the Medicare system cares a great deal about these patients. There's um, you know thirty percent mortality uh, after an acute decompensated heart failure uh, hospitalization. So, I mean, there's a lot, um, at stake with these patients. And if you talk to Naveen, uh, or any of the other physicians who are treating these patients, um, you know, it's, it's a struggle. Um, so I think, you know, there's a clear opportunity if this, if this technology, um, you know, does what we hope it does to really help, um, um have a significant patient impact. And by virtue of that, hopefully, you know, really impact uh, the healthcare system in a positive way.
0: And, uh, what boxes did it check off? You said that, you know, that this, these opportunities, their marriages, you need to be certain of this step. Mm-hmm. So you must have a list of it you must have this, 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 and this for me to make that jump. What, were those, <laughs> what, what was that list? And, and tell us how it, how it checked the boxes.
1: Well, they never check all the boxes because if they checked all the boxes, <laughs> so it would be, a, it'd be a pretty easy deal. I think for me that it had, um, you know, some initial, um, funding uh, that it was a technology that uh, had a clear value proposition uh, in terms of patient impact and an unmet need. Um, and then I think it was also a little bit about you know who are the people I'm going to be working with? Um, is it a, a disease state um, you know that I feel I can you know really um, understand and and again, get behind. Uh, I think you have to be passionate about what you're working on. Um, and I f- felt like this was an area that I could be very passionate about in terms of uh, the impact on the healthcare system.
0: And how is the company structured currently? How, currently, how many people are, are working with you, and what is the the state of your, your research? Are you, are you in animals and humans? Where are you?
1: Well, we're we're um, just getting ready to um, uh, do some uh, work and uh, do some clinical trials. We have a significant amount of uh, Naveen Kapoor, who you mentioned earlier, has done some um, proof of concept work in humans. He's done some you know, recent presentations at some of the big scientific meetings like uh, um, and uh, some of the heart failure meetings and uh, catheter-based meetings, uh, presenting his d- data. Uh, so the early data has been promising. We're moving forward with additional studies um, that we hope to begin you know, sometime this year. And uh um, you know, it's uh you know, moving moving as fast as we possibly can um to try to uh proof the concept of the technology.
0: And what does uh Precardia look like in a few years? Do you see this as the kind of company that's gonna re- need to raise a lot of money to get to where it has to go, or do you have some plan in mind where you can get by uh with less?
1: Well, yeah, you know, we take a very conservative approach. Um, you know, I, I until uh, we get a little bit further along. Um, you know, we have a, a business model that we have some very clear core um, folks inside the company. Uh, we have some amazing advisors and consultants working with us. And I think, you know, as we get further along and closer to a pivotal trial, you know, I think there's going to be a need for additional funding at that point in time. Um, but hopefully, you know, then we'll have a, a compelling data uh, story to help drive that. And then I think that's when the company gets built out a little bit, uh, a little bit more.
0: And finally, how do you prepare yourself for the CEO role? I I kind of skipped over your your work at Mitraline where we were, where you were when we first uh, connected, you were chief operating officer there. Was that a a good uh, primer for being a CEO or have you taken other steps reading books or talking to mentors? I mean, what do you recommend for, for people who are Hoping themselves to someday be a CEO.
1: Well, it's a it's a great question. I think there's there's uh, a lot of things. I don't think it's any one experience. Um, you know, I'd say it's a mix of uh, you know I'm on a couple of um, public company boards, so it's a mix of board work. I think the large strategics, like working at a COVIDian and even the EV3 type companies, as well as um, leadership roles in early stage companies. I think it all contributes. Um, to helping you get ready for something like this. Um, I think you don't want to ever go into it being cavalier. Um, I think being able to listen and learn from others, uh, in the, in the field, uh, take away learnings from your, your past successes and failures are important. Mm-hmm. And then I think surrounding yourself with a, a strong team. And then, um, you know, the one thing I'd say is actually listening to your, your leaders inside your company, uh, and, and your board, uh, for, you know, uh, your independent board members, for example, who are have operational experience um, to seek their advice and uh, and support.
0: Is there anything you wouldn't do? Is there any mistakes that you've seen that you've either done in the past that you won't want to repeat or that you've had, uh, you've seen <laughs> others, uh, others do that uh, you say, I'll, I, if I'm in charge, I'm, I'm never, ever going to do that.
1: Well, you know, I think it's easy to backseat drive. Um, sure. You know, whenever you're, I think that the challenge you have when you can say, I'm never going to do that. The interesting thing is when you look under the hood, sometimes you understand the reason the decisions were made, um, because I think context, um, colors of scenarios, um, you know, do I learn from my own mistakes? Absolutely. At least I hope I do. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of them in, in, in our business life. And I think it's it's really important not to forget. Um, but then also open up your mind to other ways of doing things. Uh, things change. And I think also sometimes we rely too much on our historical experience. Um, it's easy to say, when I was at blank, we did, we did it this, this way. And I think um, we talk about diversity a lot in the workplace. And I think um, diversity of experience um, and diversity of thought is, is uh, very important um, as well in our organizations that um, we bring people together who have different ideas and help us think about things differently. Uh, and a lot of that is, you know, risk mitigation. You know, a, a lot of these small companies are you know, fraught with um, uh, challenges and, and opportunities. And you know, when you're given a, a really, uh, you know, amazing technology or a technology that has the potential to be amazing, how do you make sure that you're doing everything you can to foster that? Uh, and so I think again, you know, listening and learning, um, asking good questions, um, risk mitigating up front, all those things. And not necessarily being my about how you've done things before or, or other things, but really taking that all together and that that kind of collaborative approach is really important. But you know, also being um, you know, sometimes bold with your decision making, um, and not getting stuck in analysis paralysis.
0: And just and just communicating your your thoughts, I guess, are another great way to let people know, you know, why you're making this decision.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yep. Terrific. Well, this has uh been great to uh catch up and to learn a little bit about Bicardia and we'll look forward to following your progress. Thanks for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure.
0: And that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on the Talk podcast. Before I let you go, please do a few favors if you would subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Give a comment if you haven't already. Give us four or five stars, whatever you, you desire. Five is always preferred. Four is acceptable. you're going to go three or lower, just forget the whole thing. Tell your friends about the podcast if you enjoyed it. And I'm guessing if you got this far, you had a a good enough time. Finally, reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can also email me, Tom, at healthogy.com. That's the word health, followed by letters E-G-Y.com. Healthogy is the producer of this podcast and, of course, the MedTech Conference, which is happening on May 29th and May 30th in Minneapolis. For the first time, we'll have a very large opening reception. The night before on May 29th. So uh, it gives you an, a, an ideal opportunity to uh, get your networking done early and then uh, plow ahead on May 30th into the conference and uh, really, really enjoy some terrific content. So it's going to be a, a terrific day and some. So I hope you'll join us. Go to medtechconference.com, check out the agenda. And when you register, don't forget the MedTech Talk code. Save yourself a couple hundred bucks. That's it. Tune in next week. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you on the MedTech Talk podcast.